Amen. All right, good morning, Reach. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's great to be back. Uh, our family wedding events went well. Uh, Dwight preached well a couple weeks ago, so that's great. Um, glad to be back into the book of Proverbs, kind of uh, continuing. If you have missed any weeks in the series, really encourage you to go back and kind of catch up because we really try to make sure that as we're going through Proverbs, everything's kind of together and hanging together. Um, so that would be great. Let me ask you a question before we jump into what we're going to look at this morning. Um, what's the first thing that you think of when you think of humility? Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a posture, maybe it's a, a behavior. Or if you think about just humble, what does it look like to be a humble person? Because humility and teachability and correctability, uh, those are words, you can look them up. Openness to correction and teachability is actually one of the most repeated themes in Proverbs. And not just that, it's not just one of the most repeated themes. So you got to think about like Twitter, like it's like tweeting every day, something about humility at us. But not only that, but it actually is one of the key characteristics or traits of the wise person. Do you remember throughout the book of Proverbs, we're given these two options, these two ways, these two paths that we can walk down for life. Right? One towards wisdom, one towards foolishness, towards folly. We can listen to the voice of Lady Wisdom or we can listen to the voice of Lady Folly. And humility is one of the most repeated traits of the one who is on the path towards wisdom. It's all over the place. So rather than look at one verse, I'm going to throw up a couple up here. And uh, we can just read them off. I'll just read them real quick. Throw them up here. There's like four or five different ones. All right, Proverbs, that is Proverbs, not Rav, Proverbs. okay. Proverbs 11.2, when arrogance or pride comes, disgrace follows. With humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 18.12, before his downfall, a person's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. 29.23, a person's pride will humble them, but a humble spirit will gain honor. 22.4, humility... The fear of the Lord results in wealth, honor, and life. Good thing I have all of them memorized and committed to memory, right? Just kidding, I don't. I'm just really good at making stuff up. Um, but you see, see the connection with the fear of the Lord. It was interesting. We've been talking about the fear of the Lord a lot over the series. And that humility is right tied to fear of the Lord and a healthy awe of who God is is the beginning of wisdom. But it's also where we see a cultivation of humility. You catch that? Proverbs 15.33 makes a direct connection. Next verse. The fear of the Lord is what wisdom teaches. And humility comes before honor. So we see this direct connection between the fear of the Lord. God being put in his right place so that we are put in our right place. And it's when we fear the Lord and are awestruck by who he is and know who he is that we can know who we are. Are you with me on that? That's the beginning of wisdom. That is going to lead us to wisdom. Now, we might arrive at wisdom or become wise differently or in different stages or seasons or, or what that looks like for us as individuals. But it is a sure way to continue towards wisdom. Proverbs is teaching us. Wisdom is gained by those, not by those who elevate themselves and think that they're wise or, or see themselves as wise in their own eyes. But wisdom is actually attained by those who don't elevate themselves and are teachable, and are correctable, and it's wisdom that comes to them. So humility, if we want to understand humility, I think that humility is a whole life posture of living settled under God. A whole life posture. Not just like a temperament. Some people are like, oh, when you thought about humility, you're like, oh, I know a humble person. And it's because they're, they're nice. Just like so nice, right? It's just like so nice, and just humble and nice. Well, that's not the same. Humility is a whole life posture where everything that I have been entrusted with is now settled under God. Not under me, not for me or about me, but settled under God for him because it came from him in the first place. That's humility. Not striving, not, not forcing, not controlling, not flexing, not pushing ourselves to the front of the line, not, not pandering for attention. But it's a true view of ourself before God. The great South African pastor Andrew Murray wrote a book in the 1800s on humility. He says, 
Humility is the place of entire dependence upon God and the root of every single virtue. Like he's right. That's just wisdom that has not changed. <laughs> That's just true. Humility is the place of entire dependence upon God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can have like partial dependence upon God. But if you look at your week and you look at just kind of the last season of your life, have you actually been entirely dependent upon, upon God? Because the sermon of our culture and the teleprompter that we read is that we should be dependent upon ourselves, And in fact, not just dependent on ourselves, but actually self-sufficient. That we should be able to self-actualize. That we should be able to manifest things with our words and our actions. That's not what Proverbs says about wisdom. It's entire dependence upon God. A whole life, a holistic posture of dependence. Now, if you're thinking in New Testament terms, you're thinking about the words of Jesus. Jesus calls this what? Meekness. Right? Jesus calls this meekness. Calls it being poor in spirit. There's, there's a meekness, a poor in spirit. That's the prerequisite to even experiencing the honoring and powerful point of the gospel. Is that meekness is where it starts. He says that the poor in spirit will get the kingdom. The kingdom's theirs. It's the poor in spirit. Not the ones who have nailed it and made it that get the kingdom. It's those who are poor and don't nail it and don't make it and don't actually have anything to offer. We're poor. They get the kingdom. And it's the meek who will inherit the earth. What do you do for an inheritance? Nothing. Nothing at all. Inheritance is not behavior-based unless you're one of those families who are just like, we're gonna cut out Aunt Susan because she's a tool. Right? No, inheritance goes to you because of who you belong to. And inheritance is gifted to you because of whose life you belong to. Not by what you do. And Jesus shows up and he goes, the earth isn't conquered, it's inherited. Like, like over the last couple of years, we've, we've really behaved like it's conquered. Like, it's like, let's just like make sure we really assert ourselves. Really make sure we know our place in culture. Really make sure we, we fight against the libs and the left and the whatever it is. And say, no, no, the earth is inherited. Not forced. Not captured. Not conquered. But inherited and then stewarded. That's the posture of the kingdom. It's not yours to take, church. It's God's to give. Jesus says that the blessed, the truly blessed, are not those who go and get theirs. Hashtag, whatever. Like, that's not the blessed. It's those who receive what God has freely given. Those are the blessed. That's what it means to be blessed. Winners aren't those who push past everybody else in culture and survive because they're the fittest. The winners are those who humbly accept what they have been given, and then they live to be faithful with that. That's the posture of humility. I think humility comes from a true view of yourself before God. Now, there's two sides to this. I think you can think more of yourself, and that's true. But I also think you can think less of yourself. Humility is actually not thinking more or less of yourself, but actually having an accurate self-perception before God. That's humility. You're humbled by how incapable and flawed you are, but you're also filled with gratitude of what you have and who you are because of what God has done. So sometimes false humility is like, no, not me. Like, stop. No, no, I have, no, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer. And really, you're just asking somebody to tell you what you have to offer, right? Like, well, that's not humility. That's pride, just cloaked in niceness, right? But it's not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself, but it's having an accurate self-awareness and self-perception before God. It's a posture of dependence that humbles us and makes us meek, Jesus says. It's dependence. Now, humility gets a bad rap in our culture, and meekness especially, because it kind of comes to mean like being a pushover, Right? So we got to be strong. Like, you know, I mean, boundaries, toxic people, no one's going to push me around, baby. Like, I got this. But that's not meekness. Like, it doesn't mean you're, you're a doormat or that you're squishy, right? Like, it's like meekness means squishy. It's not in the Greek, I promise, okay? That's, that's, not, what Jesus, that's not the Greek word Jesus used for meek, okay? Meek means gentle, considerate. It's not the opposite of strength, but it's a settled confidence and where you are, and who you are. And actually, in Scripture, it's often contrasted with abrasiveness. It's actually contrasted with being combative. 
So combative, being combative and insensitive and abrasive and harsh and pushing yourselves to the front of every single line is actually the opposite of meekness. It's the opposite of humility. It's not the posture of those who have the kingdom, that it belongs to them. So practically, what does this look like for us? How do we actually know that we're kind of cultivating hearts of humility? Well, I think humility allows us not to be touchy and defensive about ourselves. If, if, if a lack of humility has showed up anywhere in my life the most, it's that. It's not an arrogance, because sometimes you just think like the opposite of humility is just pride and it's arrogance and you're walking in every room like the king is here, baby, right? But a lack of humility actually can show up in you being overly touchy and defensive about you, who you are, what you have, so you build a protective wall around self. That's not humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of the last century, who's one of my favorite ever, period. Can't wait to meet him and dap him up in the new kingdom, amen? Okay, good. Yeah, he says this, it'll be up here. The meek is not sensitive about themselves. We spend our whole lives watching ourselves. But when someone becomes meek, they are finished with all that. They no longer worry about themselves and what other people say. Listen to this. To be meek means that you have finished with yourself altogether. And you come to see that you have no rights at all. That's meekness. I love that. It's not not self-pity. It's not disgust, like, oh, no, not me. It's a humble, gracious posture that you're loved, that you're forgiven, that you're desired by God despite your inability, despite your weaknesses, not because of everything you can offer, not because of your general awesomeness, right? Like the picture that I have of meekness with the kingdom is that, that we're a subject before a king and we have no rights. We have nothing that belongs to us, but we're bowing before this king, having our chin lifted up because he also happens to be our dad. We're bowed because he's king. Like, like we're awestruck by the king. Like, like we revere the king and we bow before him because we have nothing without him. But he says, daughter, son, and takes our chin and tilts it up and makes eye contact and says, now let's go live. Come to work with me. Let's go do good work. Let's go be fruitful and multiply. Let's go use everything I've been entrusted to you to go and make much of me and my kingdom. Amen? That's meekness. That's the posture. I love that. C.S. Lewis, I think, nailed it. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's what? thinking of yourself less. Now, humility is not a trait that is cultivated in us by culture. Okay, this is really important. If you think that apart from being a part of a really good community and the word of God and getting around the gospel, you will become humble, it is a lie. Because the culture of our, uh, the, the sermon of our culture today, kind of the teleprompter that we're reading from is think of yourselves constantly. Because the entire point is you. Everything is I this and me that. We literally have things named for us, right? Think of yourself constantly. What you want, what you feel, what you think is of utmost importance. Cut off everybody who gets in the way of your path to self-fulfillment, which, by the way, you get to define because it's about you. That's the sermon. And it's everywhere. All week this week, you heard that sermon. You read it, you saw it, you felt it, and it shaped you. We talk about this a lot here, but if our spiritual formation is not stronger than the spiritual deformation of our culture, we will not be changed, amen? So our culture is not doing us any favors and helping us become humble, gentle, considerate people. We're becoming the opposite of all of those things. Why? Well, when the highest cultural value, when the point of life is self-empowerment, self-esteem, and self-actualization, then getting yours and doing you, humility does not seem very helpful. You with me on that? Like, humility doesn't help us get there. So we got to get rid of that and then boss ourselves to anywhere that we've determined is the point of where we need to end up. So culture is just this group of people pushing 
to the front of some proverbial line that, by the way, we haven't even defined what it is, but clamoring for attention and influence and control and then bragging about who's winning and comparing ourselves to others because one-upmanship and winning is the point. And it's everywhere. And it's in your heart. And it's in mine. But here's the good news. I know we're just like, yes, culture. No, culture's really going. If only we could go back. It's like, back to where exactly? Back to leave it to beaver. Oh, yeah? Okay. Racism? Mm, no, not that part. Oh, okay. What part then? Oh, no, okay, no, no, never mind. Not that one. Let's go back to like... The 60s. Okay. Okay. And you start pointing some things out. You're like, no. How about the 1700s? Uh, okay. And then you start pointing. Like, like, we got to be careful, right? Like, this isn't new. This comes right from the garden. And we don't want to go back there. We want to go forward. Pam mentioned it. This story starts in a garden and ends in a garden city. Amen? We're going forward to a new garden. To a renewed, restored garden. Right? This takes us back to the garden. We're going to hyperlink to Genesis. Amen, Reach? We in the house? Yeah, we are. I was gone for two weeks, and now we're back, hyperlinking to Genesis. Everything is right in the world. We were created by God to know God and be known by God, right? And we're told that it's in knowing God that we know what? Ourself. That we're image bearers. We're created to reflect and be like God, and then we're tasked with a vocation to go out and work with God and from God. That's the garden. But if only things stayed that way, Right? Things break down quick. Why do things break down? Well, because we search for self independent from God. Rather than actually live settled under God, rather than enjoy life under God's rule as image bearers to reflect him, we want to reflect ourself. We want to live for self. We build a self-image independent from God. Then what happens when independence from God takes its full effect? Well, sin shows up and it dethrones God and enthrones who? Us. And then in the process, devalues everything. That's the garden. That's Genesis. Now this is tricky for us because the centerpiece of our modern Western culture is what? Self. The centerpiece of our modern Western culture is self. And, and it is so insidious and everywhere and subtle that we don't even know it. Because most of us actually make our Christianity about ourselves, and we don't even know that. We make it about our felt needs, we make it about the style of music that we like, we make it about all sorts of stuff, as if that's the point. And we don't even know how much we do it. And you pay attention a little bit to kind of the narratives and the scripts in our head, and you start to realize, wow, like I really, self really is at the center. But wisdom can't come unless we actually start with that self-examination of how much is self actually at the center. And if you're like, well, it's not, then you're really not doing quite well on this journey, right? But when self-esteem and self-image and self-fulfillment and self-actualization and self-empowerment and self-love is the point of our culture and becomes the functional idol and God of, our ch of choice today, then self is at the center of everything. Romance, finances, career choices, what we do, what we don't do, who we do it with, it's all at the center of that is self. We live life as individuals, not collectively, because life's about us. We prioritize personal desires and interests, not the interests of others. That means practically that we decide where we live, what job we get or don't, how we spend our money and where we, where we spend it, what we do with our time, all based on how it will impact who. Well, I like this. Will this feel good? What will this do for me? And it's everywhere. Sociologists call this expressive individualism. And as much as it's not new because it's from the garden, it's new in the fact that Western culture has actually taken the self and built the entire cultural ethos around it. That's what's new. Because Eastern cultures and Southern cultures globally don't have self at the center. Is every person selfish? Of course. Absolutely. We see that in scripture, no doubt. But we have, this is the first time we've seen a culture that has actually built everything, its values, ethics, norms, and systems around expressive individualism. That's how you find truth, meaning, and purpose in life, by looking where? Inside. Inside yourself, not outside yourself. And then once you look inside, you get to express your feelings and desires of your authentic self. 
Now, who determined your authentic self? Well, you did. Because you looked where? Inside. And then you determined your authentic self, and then you lived to express that. That is a massive shift culturally and historically. And experts are still catching up to see, like, how has this actually affected us? Well, since the 1980s, we've had this effort to boost self-esteem, which is a good thing. You want people to have some sense of value of who they are, no doubt. But it's also got into education and parenting books and sports where it's just like, everyone gets a ribbon. It's like, even the losers? No one loses. What? Right? Like, you know, I mean, this is why we don't win at stuff. This is why other cultures spank us in other sports. Because they grew up wanting to win. Like, it's like, there's winners. And it's like, no, you lost. No. Give me a ribbon. Right? It's everywhere. It's in sports. It's, it's all over the place. And then we're told we can do anything we can put our minds to. Right? You can be anything you want to be. Anything? You know what my dream was? To play in the NBA. And for like five minutes, I believed I could do anything I put my mind to. And then I realized I am a 5'8 on a good day, Caucasian male in Canada, and I would not play in the NBA. Because the Lord, who is sovereign over history, made sure there was limitations on Dustin so that I couldn't play in the NBA. But culture told me I could do anything I set my mind to. Now, there's some truth to that. We want people to be encouraged. We want people to strive. Amen? We want to strive. There's things that tell and, and, and that just like flood us with doubt, doubts that we can't do anything. But when the pendulum swings from that to you can do anything and everything you put your mind to, we all of a sudden have another problem. Are you with me on that? We have another issue culturally. Be anything you want to be. Do what works for you. It's backed by the law of attraction. Just put it out. Put it out in the universe. Put it out there. Put it out and see if it comes back. It's not coming back. Okay, just keep putting it out there. Like it's gonna, right? Like, you know, so we, it ends up throwing us all the way over to like lunacy, where again, self and self-actualization and self-expression literally becomes the point of all those other things. And that's where we are. What's the result? Okay, so is this working? It's killing us. Literally killing us. Not, not philosophically or culturally or sociologically. Expressive individualism is literally killing us. When you look at the time in history when self became the centerpiece of all things, you see an immediate spike in mental and emotional unwellness, suicide, relational breakdown, and overall a cultural lowering of our value, which is crazy. Because the whole point was, we need people to have higher self-esteem. But all it did is put more burden on us as ourself, and it ended up killing us. Because we can't live independent from the God who made us and build an identity on ourself and expect it to actually fulfill us because we weren't created for it. The weight of your satisfaction and fulfillment in life is not on you. And the second it is put on you, it will crush you. We weren't made for that. You know, engineers in the room, you make things for a purpose. You need to know the purpose before you actually look at the mechanisms and the way that you're going to build something. That's our God. He knows what we're made for, and he determined that. And it's when we go outside of that lane and we try to actually put a different purpose on ourselves that it ends up breaking down, and it's breaking down. Why? Because we can never match up. We're left with shame. We have a shame culture. We just turned it into a cancel culture and a toxic culture to cover it up. We have a shame and failure culture. We have a performance and achievement culture. We have a whole generation without a healthy sense of self or who they are or what it even means to be human. Why? Because we made self the center point of everything. So it didn't work. Carl Truman wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He said, when self-creation is the name of the game, then the present moment and the pleasure that it can contain become the keys to my eternal life. I think he's right. And that's where we are today, culturally. Before we see what we can do about this, let's look at the flip side of humility. What's the opposite of being humble? Help me. 
Yeah, yeah, there we go. We got this. You're starting to fall asleep around like the 20-minute mark. You know we're going longer than that, right? The opposite all throughout Proverbs of humility is pride, right? The antithesis of humility is pride, okay? And it's everywhere. Watch this. Here's a few examples. 16, 18. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. 15, 25. The Lord tears apart the house of the proud, but he protects the widow's territory. Man, if you want to meditate on a verse this week to really understand and glean like the heart of our God, meditate on that verse. It's amazing. 14.3, the proud speech of a fool brings a rod of discipline, or in Hebrew, it's like destruction, but the lips of the wise protect them. Proverbs 16.5, everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. That sounds like bad news. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Okay, I don't want to be on team pride. Anybody? That doesn't sound good. But here's, here's what's interesting. When you look through Proverbs, you look through all of Scripture, Ultimately, pride is the starting line for the way of the fool. It's the starting line of the way of the fool. It starts with pride. And then pride just destroys us, little by little by little, as we go the way of the fool, as we go the way of lady folly, as we listen to foolishness, because we have determined the path that's right. Remember, that's what Proverbs is saying. When we determine the path that's right, and God shows up and goes, yeah, but it leads to death. Oh, but I thought it was going to lead to life. No, but it leads to death. Can I tell you what leads to life? Right? That, that's the difference here. Um, okay, so it, it's the starting line for the fool, but it's not just foolish and self-destructive. It's evil, Scripture says. Pride actually is evil. Now, that's interesting because what we're getting at is like pride is the sin beneath many sins. And, and often it's talked about as the root sin, right? When you go back to the garden, what was the root sin that led to the destruction and the curse and all of that? Well, it's, it's independence from God. That's pride. It's I don't need anything except for what I already have or what I've determined. In Proverbs, pride is one of the seven deadly sins, right? Along with lust, gluttony, greed, laziness, anger, envy, right? They're all there. But pride is like this, this root that leads to all of that fruit. The fruit of pride is awful. It's because the roots are rotten. And at the root, what pride does is it ignores the first principle of wisdom. Okay, understand this. The first principle of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. Pride ignores that. We're not awestruck by who God is because we're awestruck by who we are. We're not dependent upon God because we're dependent upon ourselves. So it ignores the first principle of wisdom, but also it ignores the, the greatest two commandments that Jesus teaches. To love God and love neighbor. Why does it ignore those? Because pride prioritizes itself. We can't be busy loving God and loving neighbor when we're self-absorbed and self-concerned because we love ourself. That's the danger of it. Pride convinces us that self-fulfillment is the aim of life. And it also makes us the authority of our lives. And it rejects and resists any outside authority. Nobody can tell me nothing. It's a cute mantra of our culture. It's just dumb. It's foolish. Nobody? Shakespeare said, pride is his own trumpet. Doesn't even need a trumpet. Just gonna go, like a bee. I'm in the room. I'm the point of life. That, that was a terrible trumpet. I don't know what that was. Ultimately, what pride does is it distorts our view of reality. That's why it destroys us. It distorts our view of reality. It distorts first our view of God, then it distorts our view of self, and it distorts our view of others. It distorts our self-perception, it blinds us to our own flaws, and it magnifies the flaws of others. That's what pride does. Some of us are really, really good at giving constructive criticism to others, and the second anybody has anything to offer you, little cutie, little scooter, no, whoa, 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 whoa. Exposed nerve, do not, do not. How, how, who, who, how dare you correct me? It's like all you do is run around criticizing and correcting other people though. You gotta play ball, baby. You can't give it and not take it. That's not life, but that's pride. 
It ignores our flaws and magnifies others so that we can make it about their flaws so that ultimately we can feel better about ourselves. And I think honestly, if you just reflect for a second, think about your life. Think about a time that pride distorted a relationship. Maybe it's yours. Maybe it's somebody else's. But I think we can all really quickly think of a moment when pride has, has come in and just distorted a relationship. It's caused conflict or tension, maybe unnecessarily. It's, it's led to harsh words being said or said to you. That's pride. Pride is at the root of so much of that. Harsh words, abrasiveness, a lack of sensitivity to others because it puts us at the center, and a burning of bridges, not a building up of bridges. By the way, as an aside, everybody knows it's Pride Month, right? June is Pride Month. If you think that the Christian posture of punching down and being critical of an entire community of people is where Jesus is hanging out, you're wrong. So if that's how you're using your social media, or you see others who are using their social media, that their job as a prophet on the wall is to go and ridicule an entire community of people who God loves and cares for and wants to save and rescue and transform and change and redeem, P.S., if you think that that is our mission for Pride Month, you're disqualified. And I'm not talking about just Christians. I'm seeing leaders do this. Like their social media is full of ridicule and criticism of an entire group of LGBTQ people as if that is our job for Pride Month. Be humble. Close your mouth. Sit down. And when you have something redemptive to offer, maybe you'll come back to the table. If you see a brother or sister behaving that way, please call them out. They'll block you and cancel you and walk out of your life, but maybe that's better. All right, that was the by the way. Let's keep going. Pride is so dangerous because it's so subtle and so hard to see in ourselves, but so easy to see in other people. The proud person doesn't think they're proud, right? So that's some of us. It's like, I don't struggle with pride. But, but all of us do, right? Like it's the root of so much. Most of us don't think we struggle with pride, which is what makes it so dangerous. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote this. Listen, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Do you believe that? Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. If you have time and you have a copy of Screw Tape Letters, C.S. Lewis has an entire chapter about pride and the way that the enemy, God, wants to keep his people humble. But if only we, the demon team, can get people to stay focused on themselves, then we're winning. I think it's chapter 43 or something. Just text me, I'll remember it later. So this is not just anti-God, is not I hate God. We've got to be careful with that. It's like, I hate God, I don't believe in him. No, no, no. Pride removes God from the equation of our life practically. So like it's a functional just deletion of who God is and God's role in our life. It's not just like, I hate God. We could be like, I love God, but then functionally live without him anywhere. That's pride too. James 4, verse 13 through 16 says, it's not gonna be up there, just listen. It's like a really nice summary of this. Hey, you who say tomorrow we'll travel to this place and we'll make some business deals and we'll make some money and then the next day we'll go and do this and then we'll do that. He shows up and he's just like, yeah, but you don't know what tomorrow will bring or what your life will be. You are but a vapor. Boasting is evil, right? It's just like making plans without God at the center of those plans is actually pride, which is evil, and it leads to destruction. How you plan your life points to what you want most, amen? Like to, to make plans without God is to play God. That's it, and that, that's pride. The root of that is pride. James 4, 6, in another text of James, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You ever thought that maybe God is actually against you with some of your decisions and desires? Some of the foolish things that you think you want to do, and God is actually opposing you because it's rooted in pride? And he's like, no, no, you haven't, you haven't humbled yourself yet. You haven't been humble yet. I'm gonna oppose this. I'm gonna, pre I'm gonna resist you being able to do this because I love you and I'm gonna try to get you to a point of submission and humility. All right. 
So it's hard to see in ourselves. It's really, really easy to see in others. But pride also blinds us from the ability to be self-aware. I think this is really important because it does make us hypercritical of others and uncritical of ourselves. So we end up living lives of self-justification, uh, blame shifting, never taking responsibility for any of our decisions or anything that we want or desire. And often we're the exception to every single rule, right? I mean, we do this with Christianity too. She's like, yeah, well, I mean, I know. Like, I know community is important, but I don't, I don't know. I have my devos in the morning. I don't really need community per se. Some people do, right? Because, like, they're there and they really need, each, need others. But, like, not me. We do it all the time. Like, we are literally the exception to every single rule. And then we're, like, really robust and firm with every rule for other people. That's pride. And we live in a blame-shifting culture, Right? We're encouraged to go easy on ourselves, but harsh with others. Just go easy on yourself. Just, just do you. All grace for you, no grace for others. Circumstances are never your fault or responsibility. Just go easy on yourself. John Wesley said the opposite, that we should actually be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others. And that's true. Like there's humility in that. If you apply a standard of criticism to others that you're not applying for yourself, you've just disqualified yourself from actually offering any type of criticism. And the root of that is pride. That you've determined you're the one that should be at the table offering criticism because you've got this ultimate sovereign view on all things. You're just amazing. You're super awesome. And I honestly think the last two years, as hard as they've been, and there's been a lot of disturbing, challenging, frustrating things that have happened, I think... The amount of criticism and ridicule and one-upmanship and self-righteousness and division that has sprung up, not from outside the church, but inside the church, reveals not only a severe lack of self-awareness, but a debilitating pride in our hearts. And, and I actually think that God will withhold blessing. And 2 Chronicles 7 actually shows that he'll withhold revival if his people do not humble themselves first. He actually says, I won't answer your prayers unless my people humble themselves first. And I think that we've seen some really disturbing things from inside the church, let alone outside. I always find it strange how often we want to point to outside, though. Like the culture is the problem. The world. Oh, the world. It's like, yeah, but the world is going to be the world, right? Like, I, I don't know. Anything? No? Yeah, like they're not redeemed? Like they haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So like, why are we still so shocked all the time by how the world is behaving? I, I don't get it. Well, often it's the ones that are trumpeting the loudest about the world and culture that are not leaning into self-examination at all. And their own self-awareness is so off and their pride is so strong and so big that they have to make it about other people to take attention off themselves. So church... The convicting part of this call to humility is that if we want wisdom, it starts with humbling ourselves. We can't be even effective on mission to the world unless we start in-house, unless we clean up here, unless we examine our own hearts. Not your spouses, not your friends, not your neighbors, not your unsaved whoever, not whatever community you want to punch down on, but but yourself. That, that it actually starts there, that God actually says, I'll answer those prayers. If my people humble themselves and call upon my name and seek my face, then I will heal their land. Jonathan Edwards, Puritan pastor, said that spiritual pride spent, tends to speak of other person's sins with bitterness or with laughter and an air of contempt. But pure Christian humility rather tends either to be silent about those problems or to speak of them with grief and pity. The proud person is apt to find fault with other believers, that they are low in grace and to be quick to note their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in their own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He is apt to esteem others better than themselves. 
So pride doesn't just cause us to look down on others, it does. But it also causes us not to look at ourselves. But why do both those things happen? Because pride causes us not to look up. Pride causes us not to look up. So we only look across. We don't look in, we look across. So we're able to criticize others. We avoid self-examination so we don't grow into wisdom. But ultimately the stem of this, the root of it, is that we fail to look up. Pride starts by not placing God in his rightful place. That's where pride begins. Pride is a refusal to let God be God. God can't be honored as the most high when you are. And that's what pride does. Tim Keller, last quote, I promise, says, pride makes sympathy nearly impossible. So here, empathy, sympathy, anything that doesn't allow you to walk a mile in another person's shoes. Pride keeps us from really noticing people from putting ourselves in their shoes, from recognizing when they are hurting or unhappy. It keeps us absorbed with our own agenda and our needs. Highlight agenda. If the proud see someone suffering, they think they are too smart to let that happen to them, or they feel too sorry for themselves about their own problems to care about someone else's. It begs the question for us, do people seek you out to share their problems? And you're like, no. I love it. <laughs> it might be because you're so self-absorbed but they, that they know there's not gonna be any kind of ability to empathize or walk with them. Or it's that you're only talking about your own. Are you a supportive and welcoming person? Like, is that the posture that you have for other people to process things, challenges, issues, weaknesses, sin? If not, it could be a lack of empathy, but it also could be pride that you're too focused on your own problems, your own agendas, and you're too self-absorbed to even be a help to your neighbor. I think that's what Tim Keller's getting at here. So how do we remedy this? This is heavy, right? This is the bad news. We always start with the bad news, amen? How do we remedy this? Well, I think we need a fresh understanding of Jesus's invitation to the gospel. I think we need a fresh understanding of the paradox into which we are invited. Luke 9 Jesus turns to the crowds and he says to all, I love it, all, all people. Like, and I, I think we forget that, right? Like, I feel like sometimes in our own pride, in our own self-righteousness, we've set up like things that you need to accomplish or do or get rid of first before the invitation to come and experience grace is actually heard. But he turns to everyone and says to all, if any of you want to come with me, anyone, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hold on to your life, you will not be able to experience life. Do you see the paradox in that? It's that, that, that humility begins with saying, I don't actually even know what will lead to life. So I'm going to let it down. I'm going to surrender that. And I'm going to pick up the cross and I'm going to go. A healthy self-image, ironically, I know in our culture we've lost this, but a healthy self-image is actually found not inside ourself, but outside, starting with God and surrendering our own control. That's the paradox. And that's the tragic exchange from the garden that continues to, to give us rotten fruit. It's that when we play God or we try to live like God, that we become less human, not more. When we worship counterfeit gods, when we reduce the image of God within ourselves, that pride ends up distorting and diminishing our humanness and ultimately our dignity, our value, and our worth. But Jesus' call and invitation to all of us is put all that down. And don't let the irony be lost. He's saying pick up a cross. Like there's no comfortable way to carry a cross. And it's also a symbol of death. Like we forget that, right? Like we have like tattoos of it, guilty. Uh, we have necklaces of it. You know, we get like earrings of it. And it's just like, oh, the cross. Mm. It's like, yeah, praise God, yes. But let's not like move on too quickly from the paradox of what it looks like to pick up a cross daily and follow Jesus. Where was he going? To die. He was laying himself down so that he might be glorified and lifted up by the Father. You see the humility as the root there, as the starting point, the starting line. 
And the good news is that Jesus is the all-powerful king who actually is God and in charge and totally self-sufficient and has every reason in the world to be proud, but is the humble king. He's the humble king who comes to rescue us. He's the one that seeks us out. He's the one that truly embodies gentleness and meekness. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, we see exactly this. The invitation again, come to me all, all of you who are tired. Anybody tired? Anybody burdened? Anybody torn? Come to me and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke. Learn from me. Let me carry you. Because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest so deep that it'll be for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This invitation is that the all-sufficient, all-powerful king who has every reason to be proud actually humbles himself to come and lift all of us up. Saying, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out? Come with me. Get away with me. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I'll show you how to do it. Come and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Then he says, he is humble and gentle in heart. Isn't that wild? That's not just like how he acts sometimes. He's like, sometimes I can be humble. See that? Like he's like, now sometimes I can be gentle. He said, I am gentle. I am humble. It's how he is. It's who he is. That his heart is pointing to the central thing about him, and that's humility. The best text that kind of captures this is Philippians 2. And we're done, I promise, promise, promise. Philippians 2, verse 3 through 11. Listen to these words and then tell me how many of us are nailing this, okay? Ready? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or pride. Anybody? But in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Why should we do this? Because we are called to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Disgraceful. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That's the invitation. That we're called to the cross before the crown that we're called to be crucified in ourselves before we're resurrected, that we're called to a death to self before we are given life everlasting. Andrew Murray, one more time, said, so Jesus came to bring humility back to earth and to make us partakers of it and by it save us. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. That's the invitation. Humble submission. Neediness is where pride ends and where true life begins. So as we reflect, we're going to take a minute. We're not just going to jump into singing. I want us to pray to this end. Why? Because prayer is how we practice humility. Prayer is one of the ways that we are able to practice a posture of neediness and humility. We had a few of us pray. We pray on Sundays, every first and third Sunday. We had a few of us, but I could tell you, Reach Montreal, I would love to see that room full. Because that is honestly the powerhouse of the church. How much we are willing to sit side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and admit our desperate need and willingness before the Father. And it's in prayer that we do that. So take a minute, quietly reflect and pray, and then we will sing and respond to the majesty and glory that is God and belongs to God. Let's do that now.
Psalms reminds us to be still and know that you are God. And it's when we're still that we are left with nothing to control, nothing to do, nothing to accomplish. And we're reminded that we are not you. I pray for each of us that this would foster humility in us this morning, that we would be able to see all the ways that pride does creep up in our own lives, first and foremost. We thank you that you do that and you expose us to that and reveal that to us with a gentle and humble heart. We ask that that would cultivate humility in us as a people, as brothers and sisters, as a church, that our witness to the world would be just bathed in humility because that's who you are, Jesus. So I pray that you would convict, but also compel and encourage us with this this morning, that we would leave here, we would walk out those double doors humbled by your goodness, by your grace, by your mercy, and by who you are and the work that you have done on our behalf because of your goodness. You ask these things in the only name that matters, in Jesus' name.